Most of you look like you're sitting comfortably. You look nice and relaxed. And so before we open our Bibles, I'd like us to hear some words from a lady called Anne Dillard. She's talking here about her attitude to God. And she asks this question. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should have life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out where we can never return. Now we may not relate to everything Anne Dillard says. In our culture, ladies tend not to wear hats to church. And we certainly don't go around thinking or believing that our God is asleep. But I think we can get her point. Do we act as if he's asleep? Do we have any idea of the power we are dealing with? We talk about being in God's presence. Do we have any sense of the danger we might be in? The God we are dealing with is not asleep. He is not under our control. And when you and I realize that, even crash helmets seem completely inadequate. We are looking at 1 Samuel. And our passage this morning helps us see what Anne Dillard was talking about. In our passage, two groups of people are confronted with the unbearable presence of God. We're going to look at chapters 5 and 6, and actually we'll just cross over into the first two verses of chapter 7. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 275, and a large print Bible will be 422. Let me remind you that last week we heard about a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. It was a battle the Israelites lost. They lost it in a big way. And we saw their reaction to the loss. They reacted with despair. Their despair is summed up by one Israelite lady at the very end of chapter 4. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Well, so much for Israel. What about the Philistines? They won the battle. They captured the ark, that box which was a sign of God's presence. How's the mood in their camp? Well, that's where chapter 5 takes us. We'll read the first five verses to begin with. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it, from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, 
There was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. The following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. When verse 1 tells us the Philistines marched off with the ark of God, it's not hard to figure out what their mood was. Back in chapter 4, they'd been afraid of Israel's God. When the Israelites brought the ark to the battlefront, the Philistines were terrified. But they tried to man up. They did their best, and they won. Israel's soldiers and Israel's God had turned out to be pretty easy meat. They must have wondered what they were so worried about. And they marched back for a party in Ashdod. That's in their own territory. But before they start the party, they take Israel's God and they set him in the temple of their God. Just like a trophy on the shelf. Now the Old Testament is clear that the ark is not God. It's a symbol of God's presence. Israel knew that. But the Philistines are used to having gods they can see and touch. So they treat the ark like an idol. Dagon was their chief god, and as they see it, Dagon's power is obviously greater than the power of Israel's god, Yahweh. Yahweh was the name God used for himself. In our Bibles, it's translated with the word Lord in capital letters. The Philistines believe Dagon has defeated Yahweh. So they put Yahweh beside Dagon. He can sit there in Dagon's shadow. But next morning when the party's over, Dagon has moved. He's fallen over. And it looks like he's bowing down to worship Israel's God. And notice what the Philistines do. They take Dagon and put him back in his place. They're used to dealing with gods like Dagon. They fall over sometimes. You have to help them back up. And we're supposed to see how ridiculous this is. Then the next day, not only has Dagon fallen over again, this time his head and hands have broken off. Dagon's going to need a trip to the idol repair shop. In fact, the text says literally his head and hands had been cut off. That was how defeated armies were treated in those days. So yes, Dagon has fallen and he's broken a little bit, but we're supposed to see a much greater significance in this. Yahweh has carried out a military execution on Dagon. Israel's God has not been defeated. The Israelite army is nowhere in sight. But Israel's God fights his own battles. And he isn't going to share space with a lifeless rival God. The Philistines have finally met the living God. 
And they are discovering he is the God who will not be tamed. He will not be set on the shelf. And the Philistines soon realize that actually a broken idol is the least of their worries. Look at verse 6. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Last week we were introduced to a word that's often translated glory. But we saw that it can also be translated weight or burden. So the same word used to tell us that Eli was heavy was also used to talk about God's glory. And this play on words continues here in chapter 5. Israel, we know, is in despair because the ark has gone. They think the glory of God has gone too. And less than 50 miles away, the Philistines have the ark, and God's presence is an unbearable burden on them. It's heavy on them. God's presence is bringing devastation on them. His glory is crushing them. But they don't want to admit defeat. They'd marched off with the ark like it was a trophy. Imagine the embarrassment of having to send it back to Israel. They don't want to do that. So the rulers of the Philistines, they get together and they begin passing the ark round like a hot potato. After Ashdod, the city of Gath, somehow draws the short straw. And when they try to palm it off to Ekron, people of Ekron rebel. They won't have it. The Philistines thought they had captured Israel's God. But actually, he is rampaging across their land. He's destroying their cities. And so eventually, they do admit defeat. In verse 11, they say, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. The Philistines were an ancient people. But their view of God is still very popular. 
People are still trying to tame God. Yes, there are some people who are trying to get rid of him completely. But most people don't go that far. They think God can have his place so long as it's not the central place. So it's fine to believe in God, they say, but he can't have any authority over, say, your sex life or your work life or your political views or your ethics. It's fine to believe in him, but his word can't determine what's right and wrong. So sure, give God his place so long as it's a secondary place, a place on the margins. But the living God is not that kind of God. He won't be pushed to the margins. He will have the central place. He lays claim to every area of life. And when that begins to dawn on us, when it begins to dawn on a society, then they tend to react how the Philistines end up reacting. If we can't tame him, we'll try to send him away. Philistines just want rid of God's presence. But they need some help with how to go about it. So chapter 1, chapter 6, verse 1 tells us, When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, five gold tumors and five gold rats according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way, 
They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So the Philistines eventually consult with their priests and diviners. And these pagan priests have at least some sense of what they're dealing with. We saw last week, the Philistines somehow know something about the Lord's reputation. They've heard what he did to the Egyptians, the things that we read about in the book of Exodus. And these priests understand that Yahweh has brought devastation on them because they're guilty. They're offensive to him. So in verse 3 they say, don't send the ark back without a guilt offering. In other words, if you're going to be delivered from the Lord's heavy hand, then your offensiveness has to be paid for in some way. That's a very important insight. But then having recognized the problem, these pagan priests are at a loss. What they come up with is just bizarre. Send God some models of the tumors you've been suffering from. It's hard to be sure what part the rats play in all this. They might actually be mice. The original, original language isn't specific. Some commentators wonder if the Lord had sent bubonic plague that was carried by the rats. Or it may simply be the tumors looked vaguely like rats or mice. In any case, what we have here are pagan people confronted with the true God. They have discovered he is a powerful, untamable God. And they really have no idea how to relate to him. They know they have some kind of debt to him, some burden of guilt. But as to how they can deal with that, they're just operating on guesswork. And they're like so many people today. It's hard to be exact with the figures on this, but for every one atheist in the world, for everyone who denies God's existence, there are about nine people who would say they have an awareness of his presence. They have some sense that he's there. And yet many of them try to relate to him in the most weird and bizarre ways. They just make stuff up and they hope God will be happy with it. But it's not enough to realize that God is there. We have to go on to ask, how am I to relate to him? Has he shown me how to relate to him? How to think of him and approach him and please him? Well, the claim of Christianity is that God has communicated with us through his word, the Bible. A book written by about 40 different authors over about 1,500 years. And yet, a book with a consistent, coherent message. It's one book. And that coherence and consistency backs up what the Bible says about itself. The Bible claims it is ultimately the product of one author, 
God himself. He worked through all those human authors to communicate with us. And this one book by one author points us to one person. It tells us Jesus Christ is the only way to relate to God. We can't just make up our own ways. Like the Philistines with their golden tumors. So if you agree that yes, there is something out there, there is a being bigger and greater than us, that's good. But don't stop there. Don't settle for inventing your own way to reach out to him. Investigate his word. Look for the way that he has provided. Read the Bible asking the question, how can I be reconciled to the God I find here? Well, having created their little golden offerings, the Philistines then come up with a test. They want to know for sure if this was all a fluke or not. Is all the devastation on their people just coincidence, or is it really the heavy hand of God? So they put the ark on a cart, and they hitch the cart to two untrained cows who've just given birth to calves. Now the reason for this is that in normal circumstances, two cows that have never been in harness are not going to work together. And so they're never actually going to go anywhere. And if by any chance they do work together, the only direction they're going to go is back to their calves. They're not going to go away from their calves and towards Israel. The Philistines set this up so only an act of God is going to get this cart back to Israel. And yet, that's what happens. The cows haul the cart away from their calves and straight over the border to Beth Shemesh in Israel. So the Philistines can have no doubt. They have been dealing with the living God. But the tragedy is they make no move to worship this God. In just a few verses time, we're going to see them walking back home to take Dagon to the repair shop. As far as they're concerned, Dagon might be lifeless. He might fall over from time to time, but at least they can handle him. He doesn't disrupt their lives. He's tame, and that's just the way they like it. The Philistines are like the people of the Gerasenes. We met them earlier in our reading from Mark's Gospel. Those men and women saw God's power at work through Jesus. But their response was to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Don't make that mistake. If God begins to upset your comfort, if you begin to realize you've actually been living with a wrong view of the world, if you begin to sense God laying claim to your life, 
Don't walk away just so you can stay comfortable. Don't try to cover your ears and shut your eyes to him. Yes, the living God is untamable. He might upset your world. He might turn your comfortable ideas upside down. But don't try to get rid of him. Because sooner or later, you will have to deal with him. That's why we sometimes start on Sunday mornings by singing together, Come, now is the time to worship. Now is the time to give your heart. One day every tongue will confess he is God. One day every knee will bow. So come and bow willingly today. Or one day you will do it unwillingly. Well, the ark has crossed back over the border. It's back in Israel. And we would expect the Israelites to be happy. And they are. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. Verse 15 mentions the Levites. They were one of the tribes of Israel. And back in the book of Numbers, they had been given special responsibility for looking after the ark. So now we are dealing with a very different situation from the one we saw over in Philistia. The Philistines had no clue how to relate to Israel's God. But the Levites do. And so we should be a little surprised to read that the people, most of whom would have been Levites, sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And we might ask, what's wrong with that? Well, we know that these are female cows. That was stressed when we were first introduced to them. They've just given birth. And yet the book of Leviticus a book dealing with the responsibilities of the Levites, Leviticus said that only male animals could be offered as burnt offerings. So the offering seems good. It seems a lot closer to the mark than the Philistines with their gold tumors. But actually, the Israelites are ignoring what God has said. And then look what happens in verse 19. God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. 
It's unclear what the number actually is here. The grammar is unusual, and most of the translations opt for the number 70. But whatever the exact number was, the point is the party for the ark's return has turned into disaster. Many people are dead. We've just seen the Philistines learn a lesson about Israel's God. And now the Israelites have learned one too. The God they're dealing with is the God who is never safe. Now maybe we read this and think, come on, isn't that a bit much? A bit severe? Really? So they didn't dot their I's and cross their T's. So they sacrificed a couple of female cows. So they had a little look into the ark. Is it really that big a deal? That is exactly what the Israelites thought. And their thinking revealed their attitude to God. They took him lightly. They presumed they had nothing to fear from him. They had his word, his instruction, but they ignored it. They presumed God would put up with however they decided to approach him. Dear old God, great to have you back. We can't really spare any male cows of our own, but here are some Philistine ones that we got for free. They're females, unfortunately, but never mind. And we are delighted to be this close to the ark. We've heard about it, of course, but we've never actually seen it. You won't mind, will you, if we just take a little peek? And they died. God's people do not have the privilege of taking God lightly. Yes, he is our God. And we can call him Father. But he is never safe. We dare not assume we can disregard his word and his holiness and he'll just put up with it. We dare not assume we can disregard his call to us to be holy and get away with it. C.S. Lewis pointed out in one of his children's books that our God is good. Yes, he is eternally good. He is indescribably good. But he is never safe. He's not the old man upstairs. We dare not spend our time disregarding his word and his holiness. We dare not spend our time watching and participating in and being entertained by things that God hates. We dare not hold in our hearts ambitions that God forbids. 
If we are wise, we will keep on asking the question that Israel asks. Picking up in the middle of verse 19. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jearim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jearim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jearim a long time, 20 years in all. people of Beth Shemesh ask a great question. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? But having asked the question, they have no answer. So they try the same approach as the Philistines. They pass the ark on just like a hot potato. Their response to the question isn't great. But the question itself is crucial. All of us should be asking it. And we should ask it often. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord? This holy God. And the answer is, none of us are fit for his presence. We're sinners. We could not bear his presence. So if you've drifted somehow into a presumptuous attitude to God, if you've begun to think that he's safe, then wake up. And once we've woken up, we're ready to appreciate the grace God has provided for us. We're ready to sing the praises of our Savior. The one who gave himself as an acceptable, once-for-all offering to God. The one who paid our debt and washed our stains and made us fit for God's presence. In Christ, we are accepted and brought near to God. In Christ, we are no longer condemned. And we can not only stand in God's presence We belong in his presence. We can delight in his presence. We started this morning with a warning about our attitude to God. And I want to close with some guidance about the proper attitude. This is from a preacher called Dale Ralph Davis. He says, we must regard his presence as our supreme joy and our supreme peril. This does not mean we cannot be intimate with God. It means we cannot be familiar with him. Intimacy is able to call him father and tremble at the same time. And as it trembles, know that it is love. We tremble because we know we are sinners. 
we know God is holy. And yet because of the cross, we know we are loved. I'm very glad that we can end our time this morning by remembering God's gift to us. In just a few moments, we're going to be remembering Jesus' body and blood. His body and blood that were broken and poured out so that you and I could stand in the presence of our holy God. And so as we prepare to celebrate this gift, we're going to sing together, Only by Grace Can We Enter. If you'll stand with me, please.